Hello, and welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast, where I, together with my guests, discuss various topics related to finding purpose, maximizing our potential, competitive sports, life after sports, and transitioning from one chapter of our lives to the next. If you want to learn about my podcast, please browse my personal website and blog at grandslamjourney.com, which is a collection of my passion projects. Today's episode is with Nadia Belkind. Nadia and I met about a year ago at a Stanford Continuous Studies class. From the first question that Nadia had asked in the class, I knew she was someone I would love to get to know better. And so that's how our virtual relationship started during the COVID-19 pandemic. Nadia is passionate about supporting work environments that thrive on interpersonal communication. She sees it as her mission to help generate trust, mutual understanding, connection, and positivity. After a relocation to Stanford in 2018, Nadia started teaching her class called The Secret of Interpersonal Communication at Stanford Bachelor International Center, helping dozens of international spouses communicate confidently and effectively. In 2019, she called it a mastermind job search group, and in 2020, she worked as a teaching assistant at Stanford BioSci Career Center, supporting a group of PhD students. Today, she is an operations and HR generalist at the Silicon Valley startup Skylab. Nadia holds a master's degree in sociology of education from Tel Aviv University. Nadia and I talk about the importance of relationships and interpersonal communication. Nadia is a fantastic storyteller, and I appreciate the examples she shared from her life journey growing up in Israel, moving to a country without knowing any Hebrew, and then moving to the United States. In both instances, she strongly relied on her interpersonal communication to create new relationships. As Nadia would say, Communication is not that much about what we say, but it is about how we say it. It is how we make people feel about themselves. That is what they will remember. I love Nadia's larger societal view and at the same time her skill of being able to see the individual pieces of the puzzle and how they fit together. What stood out to me about Nadia the most is her positivity curiosity, energy, and ability to think things through from all perspectives. I want to share with you a couple of my favorite quotes from this episode, as I find them to be an excellent summary of the conversation you're about to listen to. Kindness has no language. If you are kind to another person, they will feel it no matter what. Great things happen when we genuinely enjoy doing something for others. You can find other quotes and more about Nadia in the detailed description of this episode. For context, this episode was recorded earlier in the year. Enjoy the listen. Hi, Nadia. Hi. How's your Thursday? It was great. I was biking to work today. Wow. I got some inspiration from Ellie, your dog. <laughs> so I'm trying to do more physical activity. And I decided that from this weekend on, I'm only going to go by bike 
to work. Wow. How far is that? 20 minutes biking. Not a big deal. That's decent bike ride though. There and back. Look at you. Yeah, there and back 40 minutes, but I feel very energized after. That's great. So you get there, you get your bike workout slash relaxation, get to the office and ready to perform and engage your mental skills and muscles. How are you doing? Doing great. It's been a funny week this week, great weather. So I've been working out outside. I took a break during the day and did a quick workout around two. That's really nice. The sun is out. I'd rather take breaks during the day since I have a gym right outside under my cardboard. So that's very convenient. Uh And then I prefer to rather work in the evening and stretch my day. It's not as fun to work out in the evening as it is during the day. And are you able to go to the gym? I don't know. I actually haven't been to the gym in a long time. About four years ago, I um, decided to build my own gym. Uh, When we lived in New Jersey, everything is a little bit spread out there. And I couldn't find a gym that I really liked or the ones I like was about 30 minute driving. And I figured that's sort of too far for me to commit to go there every day. So we decided to build gym in my own garage. And I just started working out at home by myself from that point on. And it was such a benefit now because we have all the stuff. When we moved, we brought all the stuff with us. So now I have literally my own gym at home and I don't ever need to go to the gym or rely on the gym. I learned how to work out on my own before. Mm -hmm. So this pandemic and the fact that gym is not open doesn't really ruin my workout schedule. (laughs) So it's been really nice that I didn't have to go through all of that learning during the pandemic time. (laughs) That's true. Plus all the things are so expensive now. I was looking... Actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, and this was sort of a fun fact, seemed like dumbbells were the number one or top three on the list of things that were sold out. And I was like, wow, that's impressive. Everybody's been ordering dumbbells. And I was like, if there's one positive thing that we can come out with from this pandemic, it is that everybody will learn how to work out on their own just at home and be more active. If we all just did that as a society, there would be such a benefit for everyone. I don't want to disappoint you. (laughs) I don't want to take this wonderful theory out. I love the theory that you presented, but I just want to offer here another perspective from the group who didn't work out before and is not working out now. But what was taken from me is biking to some places. And I mean, I don't want to reframe it this way, but what I started doing much less is walking going to some meetings yes. uh, leaving one building and going to another building going and bring me food buying food yeah. i mean in sense of walking yeah and it affected my physical activity very much because for me those were the times i was physically active because of being social right and work i mean yeah social and working and biking everywhere i was biking everywhere to stand for to my previous job yeah. And then like, okay, let's have a Zoom meeting and stand in the middle of my <laughs> No, I don't have to bike or walk. I'll just walk to my desk that is right in the same room or the room next to me. So your theory is very much relevant <laughs> for people who did work out before, maybe for other yeah. groups as well. I think that most people 
became even more lazy. And I mean, not lazy, but you know what I mean. Yeah, it changes habits and when it forces us to change habits. And especially it depends on people how worried they are about their health or the pandemic. I'm actually more on the optimistic side and probably in the minority, but I'm like, I'm as healthy as I can be. Right. Obviously there's restrictions because everything's been closed in California. So there's not like I can do many things. My most exciting thing is going to the grocery store once a week. Some people though, we're really careful and don't even do that. So they have their groceries delivered and really trying to quarantine. But for me, especially because I've been an athlete, if you put me in a house and I can't move physically, I'm just going to go bananas completely. The movement is so important and such a big part of something that I've grown up. I actually get cranky if I don't work out for about four or five days. At home, the household already knows. I was like, you know what? You're just getting really cranky. You need to go get a good workout in because your brain is not in an optimal stage. Clara, but also your um, your career before that was all about moving. I yeah. Mean, all, not only moving, but all about physical activity. Yes. So that was a big change. Actually, just share a story. The very first year when I finished tennis in college, even in college, I ran around the court or did some sort of physical activity, either lift weights, running, or I had extra things that I would do in a 24-hour fitness. I was a very much of a gym junkie still back then. I was physically active and on my feet running around probably four to eight hours a day. And so right when I finished tennis, I also sprained my ankle. And it was a very bad sprain to where I could barely walk. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I could figure out was to swim. So that was the only thing I could do actively after maybe even a month because the spring was really bad. So and from being so active to now always sitting because I, I got a job. So I went to work and sat in an office mm. without windows from nine to five, five mm. to seven. I had time for dinner. And then I went to MBA classes in the evening. So I went from most of the day being active to now most of the day just sitting and That was so awful for me, that six-month transition Mm -hmm. to being just sedentary most of the day. I think that was the closest what I would call to depression I've probably been, including the withdrawal I've had from giving up tennis. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was very hard. Yeah. Sitting job with no windows. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds harsh after spending hours on the tennis court. That was also tough. That's what build us sometimes stronger, these growing pains, right? Build resilience. That's true. But sometimes it's so hard to understand what will help us. I mean, sometimes we're getting lower and lower with a feeling, for example, I can imagine you starting working in the office, but you're trying, it's a new job, right? You kind of feel reflecting back that it just go down. And like, okay, what should I do? And sometimes it's not really clear. It's not really clear. Yeah. I would say most of the time is not clear. I think we set direction. I think at some point we need to decide, set direction, and then sort of see a plan or a roadmap. Like you want to have a vision of who you want to be or what you enjoy. But then most of the things underneath, you have to trust the habits and the routine you create. And I think that is just putting in an effort and 
getting things done and progressing and every so often spot checking, am I on the right path? Is what I'm doing still bring me mm-hmm. joy and fulfillment or am I just doing it now automatically? Yeah, definitely. Also, what I figured out that our brain is treating us and treating us pretty bad because when we feel blue, we don't want to go out. We don't want to take a walk. We want to lay at this coach and not move in. We don't want to talk to people sometimes. Mm. I sometimes find myself in the low points. Mm. I get a lot of energy from people, conversations with people, with other people, especially when I'm in my low points. I mean, low points mentally, not because sometimes it yeah. has nothing to yeah, do with yeah. reality. The reality is just fine. Same day, like same day at work, nothing specific. Yeah. And at those days when I don't want to talk to people, I find myself getting miserable and miserable and miserable. And then remember, like, mm-hmm. don't talk to people. You want to make others miserable? No, don't talk to them now. Wait until you feel better. And then you just go down and down. Don't go to a walk. Walk will not help. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's a lot of energy. It's cold. It's rainy. It's sunny. doesn't matter, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the brain is tricking us to not to because actually... I ride on my bike yesterday and today to the office and I feel much better. And why do I feel better? Because for the 40 minutes back and forth for two days, I am riding the bike. Wow. You seem like you've just found a new habit that gets you into a better stage. The premise is what you find the endorphins you get from the workout. Right. And that's eventually, I think, why... I would say I'm addicted to working out because it's not how you feel during, but it's the rush that you get after and the satisfaction of knowing you did something good for yourself. Most of the time, actually, my partner hates working out. He would say, I like nothing about the workout. I just do it just because I have to do it. Then he just commits and does it. For me, I think just because it's such a big part, being active, I just always ran around doing something I couldn't sit still I think I have problems sometimes sitting still even now but uh, I think the activity and taking care of the body and giving it movement it brings a lot of clarity and I don't know if this is for everybody but for me I get my best ideas when I'm working out like if I can't solve a problem during a workout I can almost untangle it and think things through really? sometimes i was thinking i get the best ideation mm-hmm. i should just record it or write it down because then i forget them or some of the best discussions we have with my partner we create a routine when we go for a walk with ali for at least longer walks in the morning especially on the weekend because you're not constructed by time and you can talk about anything you just brainstorm and iterate so i feel like mm-hmm. the brain gets into this fun creative mode through the movement that we just debate about fun things and about men and women and hierarchies and uh, the earth sustainability like <laughs> pick a topic we probably talked about it at some point of time just had a conversation with my spouse yesterday about having great ideas in the shower mm. and i asked him if he knows why is that why a lot of times people are coming out of shower and telling themselves or others, like, I, I just had a brilliant idea. And I told him, do you know why it's that? And he was like, okay, stop quizzing me. Tell me. And I said, okay, yeah, I will tell you. It's really interesting that our prefrontal cortex is just free at this time when we take a shower. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have enough 
objects or thoughts to look at or to think about. For example, even biking, when I'm biking, what I'm doing, I'm looking at the road, right? I don't want car to run over me. I don't want to run over a squirrel. I see all the trees. I see flowers. And my brain is constantly evaluating things and thinking about them. What happens in the shower mm-hmm. is basically the shower is a very boring place for the brain because <laughs> nothing happens there other than water and the feeling. Mm-hmm. And then it allows this part to be more creative and have, I think it's that all the resources of the brain kind of goes to this part. And then, and yesterday I came out of the shower with an idea how to do my next happy hour with my employees at startup. And I was not even trying to figure it out on purpose. I mean, I didn't have a goal. For example, I had other important things this week, but figuring out what I'm going to do for my employees for the next happy hour was not my goal or was not something I was concerned about. But while taking showers, somehow the thoughts got there. And then I came out and I told myself, I have a great idea. I need to write it down. And I wrote it down. Yeah. So Uh, That's interesting. I actually didn't know that. And when you say it, I don't know if I have any good ideas personally that came out of shower. When I'm thinking though, in the shower, I focus a lot on recovery. And maybe this is also a habit back from my tennis days you learn to build intention. So the schedule is so tight and so packed with the training and school and you become very good in time management. So you build the day around that purpose and vision to be a great tennis player and everything that you structure within the day is to support it. So shower, the purpose of shower is to recover well. Mm. So when I go to shower, the purpose is to get rid of, let's say, all negative thoughts recover and be able to allow your body to then get strength and perform better in the next training. So I think that when I go to shower, I think about this is my time to recover and just space out. But (laughs) it probably connects to what comes into my mind is meditation. Because that eventually a lot what meditative state is or mindfulness, right, that you get centered. And especially if you're starting with meditation, is the best way to do it is when you're in a constructive space where you don't have many things that would trigger your attention or make you think about things. It does make sense what you say, but I didn't know the fact. It's fun. Thank you. What I heard from you is that you actually are much higher on the level of mindfulness while you're taking the shower than I am. Because you are trying to concentrate on the shower, on what's mm. going on and to recover. And my brain is like, okay, uh, boring. Let's think about something. Water. Okay, water. Some shampoo. Okay, no, let's think. Not, not, not interesting enough. I mean, like, boring, boring. Okay, let's come up with some ideas. Uh, but since like what you were saying, you were almost having a shower party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yesterday specifically, I, I do not usually have great ideas during shower. I think a lot of times I do have great ideas when I dedicate time to think about those ideas. So it's go like this. Okay, I have podcast with Clara. I need to sit down and to think about, like, to think and to feel that I'm prepared. Now it's going to be a conversation, I know, but I want to have this feeling that I prepared. I love it. This is something about me that I like. I like to feel prepared. Now, it doesn't mean that it's scripted. I think the biggest accusation of my spouse for my classes at Stanford was 
I'm not structured enough. Wow. And I'm too intuitive. Hmm. And I was like, but that's great. I like to be yeah. intuitive. My students are saying something and then I could relate to it. I can build on it. I can share another story related. To, I can connect it to my point. I love it. Yeah. And he was like, yes, but you should be prepared on your slides and to know exactly what you're going to say. I never know exactly what I'm going to say. I have a general idea of how, what I like to start, what I want to happen, and how do I want to finish, and what are my goals. Yeah, I love what you said, the being intuitive. And preparation is good. Actually, just on that note, I started reading about Israel. I always prepare before every podcast. I never feel like I'm totally ready. Even for every exam I study, I studied and I never felt I'm ready. There was always more to study. I always got an ace, but I've never went to an exam feeling like I know it and I'm going to ace it. I always felt, well, we'll see how it goes. I think it was okay, but you never know. So the preparedness is something can be helpful in some ways, but there's also over-preparing. Oh, I love what you mentioned because when we met in the Stanford class, that's what drawn me to you. I noticed you always asked the right questions and when you spoke, you had the right comment and you were able to listen really well, which is a really great quality. Many people don't have it, especially nowadays. They listen, but it's like listening high level or they add their interpretation of what people say. Your level of listening is you listen broadly the way things are and then you pick seem like the perfect words. It's just something I'm, I'm learning. I was like, oh, that was a great point. That was the right word to pick on and ask a question about. This is so kind of you saying, you know that that's not how I feel about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but this is very kind of you. That's not how I feel about it, but it's a wonderful reflection. Thank you. You're welcome. And actually it speaks because every time we have a call and how we don't know each other for so long. Really, we've had this virtual COVID relationship since the summer, which is so funny. Is You always make the conversation mentally stimulating. That is something I reflected on after our last call. I was like, why do I like talking with Nadia? Your broadness of topics and the natural curiosity and your perspective that is always very well thought through is really fun. I look forward to having a fun discussion, which we naturally already jumped in. So. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, Clara, but it's very much mutual. And you know, I was talking about you with a friend, mentioning you to a friend, and I try to explain what is it that I also like talking with you. So like, I try to explain to her how great and pleasant it is. And I tried to put my finger on like specific and I didn't succeed very well. So, yeah, we're talking, but it's not talking as I talk with other people. <laughs> so it's very much mutual. That's great. That's how great friendships are made. Hopefully we can take this friendship into a regular space when the COVID is over and have a party and meet for coffee or dinner. You're in the Bay Area, right? Yes, I'm in San Jose. Yes. San Jose. Ah, very close. In Palo Alto. We need to set up a real date, Nadia, to actually we've been virtually dating so far. Let's do it. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> Excellent. I mean, and I'm serious. Did you ever do a walking tour at Stanford? Actually, I haven't. I was at the tennis courts. I actually played the national tournament, which was at Stanford. Mm. But I've never walked through the whole campus. That One day there was some meetup that I went, but it would be great. 
If you're interested, I can come to San Jose as well. Oh, no, San Jose is not that great. <laughs> Palo Alto is better. I'll come to you. Okay, cool. Yeah. Let's do a walk. Sounds great. We will talk and walk. That would be great. Fantastic. So we already naturally jumped in. How about maybe I'll just back up. I always add my mm-hmm. introduction as after the fact to the podcast, but I want to give my guests a chance to introduce themselves if they would like. So, Nadia, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the people who may be listening. You can take it. You don't have to. It's your option. Yeah, sure. Great. First of all, I am really thrilled to record this podcast with you. Thank you so much, Clara. I appreciate this opportunity very much. And I do want to start with uh, how our friendship developed through the class at Stanford Continuing Studies, that we saw something unique in each other, and we decided to connect and look how far it brought us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that's great. I'm Nadia Belkin. I'm a sociologist and an interpersonal communication consultant. What I'm most curious about is this connection between confidence and interpersonal communication, especially body language, listening skills, voice variety. And moving to U.S. two and a half years ago, I actually realized how important is nonverbal communication in this context. When you are a foreigner, when English is not your first language, and when you're trying to make connections with people, And I realized that it's all about communication, but not the verbal communication that we think that is so important. It's not about the words that I say as much as how do I make other person feel. Mm. And I'm starting here in the US, I think, just because you and me are here in the Bay Area. So I decided to start my introduction from this part. And what I did for my first year here is helping other international scholars and spouses to feel more confident in a new land while using nonverbal communication, Mm. while understanding how we talk to each other, how we can convince each other, how we can be there for each other. And what I emphasized the most was that kindness has no language. If you are kind to other person, They will feel it no matter what. You can have an elementary level of English, but if you did something nice, if you brought something nice, if you thought about this person, you send this person an email with Google Translate, they will know that you're a kind person and then they will respond to that. Mm. And to start in a new land from this point you really need to understand the power of interpersonal communication and not the power of your English eloquent sentences and not try to be academic scholar necessarily. I mean, in the sense of mm. having a wonderful, complete sentences. I love it. You said so much. I'm just digesting all that you said. There's <laughs> so many things that come into my mind in regards to the COVID-19. How do you explore and communicate this kindness through this virtual environment. As you mentioned, body language demonstrate meeting somebody. So these virtual screens that we now all have to sit behind, there is a level you can communicate, but for some, it may be easier who are okay with video. Some people haven't been used to that that much. So it depends. There's another level of getting used to it. 
And then what speaks to me is um, the power of reciprocity, sort of what I get from your intro. And it's funny because it's now really tying to the podcast that you sent me from Adam Grin and Esther Pearl. I listened to it twice. So I listened to it the one time you sent it to me, maybe three, four weeks ago. And then I started re-listening to it again earlier today. I was like, it was such a good discussion. And I'm sure Nadia will have good topics about it. I have to go back and re-listen and refresh my memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an awesome episode. I completely agree. And more than that, the dynamic between them is awesome as well. And this is what makes it very pleasant to listen yeah. to. Not only the discussion itself, but also the interaction between them. Yeah, Clara, and you actually raised the question, how could we be kind to each other during this isolation? And I did want to share with you a few ideas on that, because even you and me have a history of that. And let me tell you, what kind of history do we have? So once we met and connected online on the first Sanford Continuing class, I went to the second class with the same instructor, Emmy Wong, and then I sent you a link. I told you, oh, Clara, it was so awesome to have you last time. Do you think you could join? And I think this act of, I was thinking about you, right? What does it mean sending the link? It means I found something interesting. I thought about you and I made a digital effort of sending it to you. But it actually has a lot of behind. Yeah. And you did the same thing for me a few times. You introduced me to a platform that you led a workshop and you introduced me to this person because you thought she is an awesome contact and I could use this opportunity and maybe lead the workshop as well, right? But what was behind it was, Nadia, I was thinking about you. I feel that I know you a bit. I want to fit your goals. I want to help you to advance your skills and to advance your career. Here is the link. And it's not so hard to do. And here I'm talking about the professional context, right? But doing it with friends, when we know somebody is looking for something, it's really easy. No. Even today, if my friend is looking for a great Airbnb and I just came back, why wouldn't I send it to her? Like, Look, here's a wonderful Airbnb. You can stay there with your spouse. Right. And what happens there in these interactions, in these digital interactions, unfortunately, is that this person sometimes is so much surprised. Oh, she was thinking about me. Like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Like, this fits who I am or who I want to be or what are my goals. And I think this feeling of, oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I agree. And then actually that starts creating sort of the community and you start building your group. It's your I guess support system, to put it into my words, that I wrote a few articles about. But people that you can support, but also can support you in, in some ways. What came into my mind when you were also saying that is this just genuine thoughtfulness, right? That to me, it's just nice to support others and genuinely help others. And I enjoy connecting people, so being the connector. So I guess there's some think of like selfishness that I, I really like right. helping others and right. serving. But um, I think that's as a society is uh, how we grow together and connect because 
where human species were been bred to exist together and have social settings and people we enjoy hanging out with and spend time and learn from each other to grow. Absolutely. And and I agree with you completely with this feeling of selflessness because when somebody tells me, oh, Nadia, this link was so helpful to me or this conference or this person that you connected with me helped me so much, it makes my day. Yeah. I'm happy. I like, okay, what can I do now? Who can I send the next link to? <laughs> yeah, who else can I have this support? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I also want to emphasize this part of reflecting and being grateful for others when they did something mm-hmm. nice for us, because sometimes we just think they know. And sometimes we just don't have time to say appropriate thank you, not just thank you, it was great, right? Yes. But actually share with them how it affected us. I can tell you that I deprived the deepest satisfaction from hearing stories of people who I connected with each other and they had projects or they had a new yes. job or they found a new idea together and started developing something together. And I was like, well, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's awesome because so many people did it for me. And then I hear stories that I was able to connect somebody, trying to think about other examples, right? Or let's say send a paper, send an article. And this article was exactly what they were looking for, exactly what helped them to think differently about some problem, about some situation, right? Yeah. And for me, that's what makes my day. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So maybe to take it back to your history because now even reading a little bit about Israel is like that's interesting why did Nadia pick sociology and archaeology and then I was reading so much it's like yeah it actually does make sense from the culture she was growing up in but personally I don't have many friends or actually trying to even think who would be in such academia focus as you have it seems like you've been so engraved in it really from early on so I'm curious if you could share your story of even how was it to for you to grow up in Israel and how was your upbringing and what shaped you to this focus? Absolutely. So I moved to Israel when I was a teenager. I was 13. My father decided that as a Jewish family, we were going to live in Israel with my mom and my brother. And when we landed in 1999, I knew exactly five words in Hebrew. Mm. That was it. Wow. And coming into this country with a, such a different language was very, very interesting experience. I spoke some English, but what I realized very soon is that most of people, especially in my neighborhood, do not speak English at all. In the school, it was fine, but around me, people, people didn't. And Thinking about it actually made me realize that I was relying on the interpersonal communication skills, on exactly what I was talking with you at the beginning, on the body language, on my voice variety, right? Because we can understand from the voice if you're kind, nice, and pleasant, or angry, frustrated, and sad, right? We don't need to understand the words to hear and to realize that. Yeah. And what happened after the first month? Living in the neighborhood, I uh, I went out out of my home and I saw a blanket, a huge blanket on the ground. 
And I looked up and I saw a woman on the third floor who was waving to me. Could you please help me and bring this huge blanket? And it was huge. King-sized bed blanket. And she was waving and talking in Hebrew with me, which I could not understand, but I definitely understood <laughs> that the blanket fell from her window. And I have an opportunity to bring this blanket back. And when I entered her apartment, I was only able to leave it after three years because we became a very, very close friends. And I was able to leave it after three years because we moved out from this apartment and we were not neighbored anymore. She was in her 60s. She had a grandchild in her apartment and she spoke zero English, nothing, not even goodbye. And basically what she did, she communicated in Hebrew completely <laughs> with everything. And what I did, I tried to learn. Yeah. I tried to understand and I tried to, to ask questions. And it's funny because I don't remember how I felt. It was years. It was almost full three years. And I was spending lots of time in her apartment. But what happened is that after my first year, I almost speak Hebrew in a very high level. Mm. Because I just had a Hebrew-speaking person spending five or six hours a day with, who were also sharing and showing us, this is a glass, this is a mouse, this is a blanket, right? And I was like, okay. And then we went into some more complex terms and uh, concepts. But I think this act of being there and helping with this blanket, it really um, shaped who I were. And she was the first person to show me the kindness of the place. Right, because I'm a newcomer. I don't know how it is here. And then I meet this neighbor who is there for me. We were cooking together, we were going to the beach together, we were doing shopping together. So I was even sneaking out of school and spending time with her because <laughs> it was much a better experience. And this was my first years. And after finishing high school, I actually always was into education. And it's funny that you mentioned my background is very much academic and I'm into it. I am in love with academia. When I finished my high school, I wanted only one thing. I want to work as an educational profession. And I actually didn't believe that academia will help me to get there. Mm -hmm. Because my perception was that theories do not help me to get things done. And theories do not help me to get an experience because experience is bottom up. Hmm. And I had some discussion with my mom and my mom told me, okay, if you want to go and just find a job in the education, that's fine. If you want to try university, that's fine. Okay, let's try university. And I enrolled into education program. And this program, it was major and minor and the education was always minor. They insisted that I will take another something. Mm -hmm. And I had a few thoughts in mind. And then I came up with sociology. And what happened that the education studies were boring. And the sociology was fascinating. Sociology classes that we have on society and what is education about? How, for example, schools are living and breathing psychology. Everything is about the student and his abilities. Nothing is about society and limiting group abilities to resources. This is not how school 
perceive student development. And I had fantastic classes on medicine and sociology. The architecture of medical institutions, what does it mean? What does it mean when you enter a bank and you need to sit down in the chair in front of a person? What does it mean when you enter a bank and you need to stand in front of a person? Mm. How this interaction shows you who is the boss, how all those interactions are actually designed to send a message. And I completely fell in love with sociology. I took a lot of classes and I took a lot of classes which were not necessary for my rating report. One of them was, how is it to be a man? Wow. And this was also the coolest class ever. And I took it, of course, after a lot of classes on gender and gender inequality. Women, women are underprivileged. Women are not paid enough. And that's true. But suddenly seeing this, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be an unemployed man compared to unemployed women? Yeah. What does it mean as a man in Israel? It is cultural, but it, there are a lot of similarities between Israel and America in this way. For example. What does it mean to be a man who chooses a career that cannot support your family? I mean, choosing the career that you love, but that has no stability. Yeah. And suddenly I realized that it's not so shiny and glowy as I thought. Because the conversation in gender studies was always about women, how women are not given, how the ceiling and how the stuff. And again, I'm saying that I pretty much into it. I'm teaching those theories in my classes. But I mean, to see this other side of culture was something very much fascinating. Mm. And yeah, I decided to write a thesis. I think I never believed that I'm capable of writing a thesis. But then I just started doing it. And at this moment, uh, when I started doing it, I saw a quote. I don't remember who is that, but it says, 50% of success is showing up. And I thought, okay, I'm going to show up to write my thesis. Mm. Today, I'm writing my thesis. What does it mean? I don't know, but I need to sit and start. Yeah. And I completed. I was very much excited because I did interviews. I was traveling around. My thesis was about the concept of volunteering. What does it mean to volunteer for students? Hmm. Why do people volunteer? Interesting. How much altruistic is that? Are they doing it for themselves? Or are they doing it for society? Are they doing it for themselves because they feel good or because they have a specific clear benefit? Mm -hmm. This is also a difference in that sense. And at some point during my thesis, my advisor was writing books about different universities how they were established. And at some point, I decided that I'm going to collect universities. Love it. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a true story. And my collection of universities had two main parts. One, the universities that I'm going to work in. And another, the universities that I will just take pictures while I'm traveling. So, for example, I was in Prague. I was in uh, Milan. I was in Warsaw. And I visited the universities there. So it became kind of a hobby to take some pictures to see. And usually I started to visit sociology department. It's very funny because nothing happens there. It just, every part of the building, sometimes there are students, sometimes it's not that I'm coming and seeing something. 
few weeks ago, we were in Santa Barbara and I told my spouse, I want to visit Santa Barbara University. And he told me, you know, there is nothing to see. I said, no, that's not true. <laughs> Actually, it's a nice one. They have a campus right close to the ocean. Seems like it would be a nice one to walk through. How did you like it? It's nice. I went to the sociology department. I mean, I visited more beautiful universities than this one. It's not a very big campus, but I liked it very much. And I think on the journey, what I'm trying to say here is I was completely wrong about the ability of academia to be fascinating and to shape who I am and to make me a better professional. Because what I realized very, very soon during my first years in sociology, that actually theories, they are the main source of acting. Mm. If I don't know what are the ways of thinking, how can I cut my actions from that? This realization was pretty cool to come up with that because I realized that I was wrong. And if I thought that academia doesn't have enough to shape my career or to help me to be a better professional, that was absolutely not true. Interesting. So you eventually, within how many years, you changed your mindset completely from theories don't help me get things done and I want just start teaching and get the educational experience. So what I'm hearing there is you were really eager to try things, do it yourself, but then within your academic studies, you changed. Now it's the theories that are the main thing based on which we then start acting. Right. It took me a year. Oh, only a year. Okay. And bachelor studies are three years. And right after, I enrolled into a master in sociology. It took me a year because we, we have semesters. We don't have quarters. So it's half a year and a half a year. The first half a year, I tried to see if I fit your institution in the sense of, am I good enough to write a paper in Hebrew? Am I good enough to do an exam? Am I capable of doing it? Mm. Those were questions. And when I got my first grade, my first exam was anthropology. Anthropological theory. Wow. And I felt that I didn't do well, of course. <laughs> and then I got my grade and it was 94. Wow. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Seems that I'm fine. And it was a very it was a very good start because it it gave me this sense of support that I can do it. Yeah. I don't need to think that I have such a disadvantage because it's not my first language and yeah I just need to study I just need to read I need to write and again this ability even to write it's not only about words and language it's about being clear and about combining different parts together yeah you said so many great things I do want to go back where did you live before Israel was your first language Russian I was born in Russia okay. on the Black Sea in a small uh, town mm. on the Black Sea. I always lived on the sea. That's why I do not appreciate it enough. I always had it. <laughs> I always thought it's out there. Yeah. Okay. So you come to Russia and you were 13, which was actually very shaping year. You're in a teenage years. You're thrown in a completely new culture. 
can't speak a word Hebrew, which is just tough language. Czech and Russian, they have the similar Slavic base, but Hebrew is completely seems foreign to me, right? I, I don't know where I would even begin if I were to start learning. And um, luckily you find this really kind woman with the blanket story. But how is it? Like, how was that 13 years for you like, going to school? You could speak some language, but not, not much. It must have been really hard at least few years until you were able to get confidence and find friends and communicate. Right. So I do want to take it even a few steps back. I'm a first child. I'm a first granddaughter. And I had six role models in my life. My mom, my father two grandmothers and two grandfathers. And the best part of it, they all believed in me, always. Mm. And I think that I was extremely lucky, this perspective, but it stayed with me. It's something that I think I have with me. And I also actually think that my ability to communicate and my off communication is because as a child, I had this opportunity to communicate with so many grown-up role models and each of them was different Mm. each of them behaved differently each of them expected me to do communicate and behave in slightly different way so I think it comes from there my mom is the greatest source of inspiration for me always she knows that I have daily call with her and I remind it to her every other day I think with the different examples my mom is the most brave and positive person that I have ever known In addition to being brave and positive, she also always believed in me. So when I'm looking at myself, 13 years old, kind of outside in the street with a blanket, and I also need to add that at home, I had my mom who did everything and my father, but my mom is my main source at this, who always had my back and who always told me that I can do it. And more than that, they showed me an example that they can do it. And it's going to be fine. And it's going to be great. Mm. I don't have tough stories of immigration. It's very much rare in Israel. I can just share with you when Israelis are talking with me and they're asking me, oh, you came as a Russian girl. I believe it was tough for you and students hated you. No, I don't have any hatred left out boycott stories that nobody talked with me and the I don't have such stories. I did have some people who didn't want to hang out with me, but then I found other people who wanted to do it. And as a kid in high school already, I was 15, I had my first Israeli friend before I had Russian, two Russian friends, because it was much easier to communicate. And my aspiration was to have an Israeli friend. And I had uh, my first Israeli friend. Her name is Yasmin, Jasmine. And, and she was incredible. She is incredible. The most creative and incredible. And she was the one that also made me believe that I can be part of this new land, Israel, I mean. It's not a disadvantage. Yes, I have a different history. I was born in a different place. I have a different language. But Should I really look at this as, oh, I will never be like them? Who is like them? Let's talk about America. Who is like them? So many groups, so many people, so many cultures. Why do we always think that, oh, they speak English differently? Yeah, but 
Bay Area, every second person has an accent. Yes. <laughs> Why should we feel disadvantaged because we were not born in the country we are living in? Right. And I think this belief came from my mom as well, right? Because it's a mindset. It's a way of perspective. So yeah. I do think that my first years in Israel went pretty well. And my next years in Israel were awesome. And I did have a other experience, right? I'm not trying to say everything was the rainbows. But if I'm looking back on the big things, big significant things, It was fine. It was fine there. So since you had great support group at home, your mom was very positive, encouraging you, and you started finding some friends and some like the Nadia's curiosity and your interpersonal skills passion kicked in really early. And that probably also shaped you to be interested in it even more. And then it seemed like the sociology classes you took were really good. Was there a teacher or a specific class that you remember that really spiked the enthusiasm that you're like, yes, this is it. This really ticks and this is what I want to study. Absolutely. I had a lot. I will pick up one that is educational policy. Mm. And I had a fascinating teacher, which I really wanted to be a teaching assistant of. I had a dream. Like my dream was to be his teaching assistant and to work with him and to research with him. His classes were about policy and policy of education and how the decision makers are actually making the decisions about schools. For example, what does it mean to mix between low achievers and high achievers in the school? What consequences do we have? Why is education different in different neighborhoods in the city? Let's, let's say we're taking the city Tel Aviv. Mm. Why is it so different? Why do educated parents don't want their kids to hang out with less educated kids, for example? I'm trying to think about some specifics here. Um, mm. But I think what happened in this specific class is that I understood I have this ability to look at the society a little bit from above. And not in the sense of arrogancy, but in the sense of detach myself from being myself a little bit and from being biased mm. and from being fed with all those notions and thinking about myself as a student, but rather look at the society or look at the city, right? We can take a look at Tel Aviv. What's happening there in terms of education? Why is this policy? What does it mean? to allow low-income students to go to a new neighborhood but don't actually have buses. Or, okay, we want them to mix, but as a, a municipality, we're not going to pay for the buses. Right. And my teacher was able to like point out those specific events and those specific uh, things there. And I was just like, wow. Well, that is so impressive in... Just the depth and the detail you're describing, I would say that that could be very relevant to no Israel, but any other community, you could almost think about applying those studies to even now what's happening in America. Yeah, I was thinking actually about the teacher's side here, about combining these students or teaching these students. And what came to my mind is the research that this professor that I'm telling you about shared with us. Again, it blew my mind. 
And it was about top 10% teachers. I mean, top best 10% teachers. And he just showed us how the top 10% best teachers, let's say in the city, again, that's not going to be, let's say in Tel Aviv, how these 10% top teachers will not agree to go to teach in low-income schools, even having the highest salary possible. They will prefer most of them to work for a much less salary, but in in high achiever environments. And I remember myself, oh, that's sad. That's like we should think how we should divide resources. We should think how we educate the teachers, not only educate the students, right? And I was an education student. I was never trained to be a teacher because that was not my aspiration, but I was always into education in this sense. And then the top 10 performing teachers will always choose to work for top achievers. Doesn't matter how much do you pay them. And then it can shred some light on all those policies. Then, you know, you bring teachers to other community. You give them home. You give them a car. You give them other stuff. So I don't have any solution here if you were hoping that I will share how should we solve it. But I mean, for example, one of the solutions should be that maybe the money is not the incentive there. We should think about other incentives. What could make them feel that they're doing a huge progress? What will make them feel appreciated enough? Think there around other motivational factors. And again, I'm not a professional in educational policy. I studied it a long time ago. But this was one point that actually made me think. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. And uh, I would love to take that class as well. Just curious if your uh, teacher is still teaching it and he offers an online <laughs> MF. I will check it out. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so many things you mentioned and I want to be mindful of of the time to ensure we cover all of the things you thought about. So feel free to kind of direct me or steer me. But I'm also very curious of the class you mentioned, how is it to be a man? And this is mainly from you and I had a few discussions before we share the passion of the gender differences. And even you shared with me before, well, sociology differences in nature, nurture, and also the biological differences, your discovery behind it, including the society standards that are set. And some may be probably similar or very similar across the globe. And then there's probably every culture and even a region within from different regions within different countries have different norms, right? Where I grew up, still so from a very small town in Czech Republic, I would say that's very traditional macho culture that you wouldn't probably see much even in the US. But I've always had in my family many dominant, strong women. However, despite their strength and creativity, courage that they had to be to some degree independent and not the traditional women we've always had the men ruling the hierarchy like there was not a question about who makes decision there were always just a handful of the powerful men who would make the decision and the women's voice was secondary that wasn't counted at that point the men rule but like it made me so interesting how is it to be a man I wonder if that would just improve our whole understanding of gender. If we all took classes, can we create a class for men 
how is it to be a woman and women take a class well how is it to be a man on masculinity as well <laughs> what is your perspective anything you can share you shared a few examples but the gender is interesting topic you know i'm still asking myself how did i came up a sociologist and my spouse is a computer scientist <laughs> right so, <laughs> so this is something that i'm yeah. still trying to figure out i mean of course i have the answers i am drawn into culture i am drawn into people but sometimes i ask myself am i drawn into it because i am a woman mm. am i drawn into it because again as i mentioned i had six role models and they all had different sets of expectations some different set but some sets of expectations were aligned right be a good girl what does it mean be a good girl mm. what does it mean to be likable from their side what will happen if i will tell them that my dream is to be a tractor driver or my dream is to be a car race i don't know professional yeah right and it's a career that i am aspiring to achieve so i think that gender studies they have something interesting in sense that gender studies are about women are about inequality but we should expand it much more to topics that would cover more things about masculinity and this perspective of masculinity i would tell you what other scholars will argue mm. and the argument against what i just said would be all other sciences are already so masculine mm. in sociology at some point i was so sad because i realized that almost all sociological theory were written by men. Hmm, that is interesting. It is hard enough to find foundational sociological theories that were written by women. Now what does it mean? Let's go into medicine. And we're not talking last 30 years even though as far as I know we improved but not to the degree that we would like to improve. Yeah. I recall that I had a moment that I just told myself I can't believe that 90% of what I'm reading was written by men only by men I mean I'm reading one side of the coin mm. where is the other side where is the other side perspectives I'm sure that women would come up with other ideas with different ideas that are related to their life experiences and to their thoughts during those life experiences Yeah that is very interesting and even the medicine i guess you touched base on that has been a huge problem yeah I'm actually still curious how is it to be a man any kind of key things that you were like wow this is really interesting or that made you think it's really not that easy to be a man it was liberating to learn that as a woman i have so much freedom in choosing my career I think I was not aware what are the forces that shape men choice of career and how much pressure do they have to choosing the right career and the right career is narrow for men much more than for women mm. I think I was surprised about that I always were very much surprised that the social price for women not to work being unemployed 
is way lower. And I think coming to the Bay Area two and a half years ago and being involved in Bechtel International Center for international students and meeting meeting a lot of international spouses from Italy, from Germany, from China, from Japan. We have some Czechs as well. And I developed a friendship relationship with few males. And it was just incredible to see how much pressure do they have to find a job. Mm. Because they were constantly asking, what are you doing? You're not working? You don't have a job yet? So what are you doing? Mm. Waking up and what are you doing? Now for me... Is it by their spouses or the family back in the country? Ah, I think family and friends, not necessarily okay. the spouse, because spouse usually brought them here or brought yeah. me here or brought them here, right? And the spouse need to be very uh, <laughs> delicate yeah. on that, I think. But it was a conversation with their friends. Mm. Sometimes it was a conversation maybe with their family. You know, they didn't share specific stories, right? but I just saw that for them, for those three male friends mm. to be unemployed and coming to the center and hanging out and have a great time and volunteering there, even teaching their classes, this was not the expectation mm. from them. And if they do it long enough, it proves that maybe they are a failure. Mm. Maybe they are not good enough. And you know, all this set of expectation. While for women, mm. it was fine. It was like, okay, now. My spouse brought me here. I'm trying to reinvent myself. I'm trying to find my own way. It will take as long as it should take. I don't know how long it's going to take. Even in a female group, there were some spouses who really wanted to find a job because sometimes job is something that defines them. It may have different reasons. Sometimes it's because job defines. Sometimes people just need the money, not only financially but like need this feeling of i own the money and i bring the money home there is different parts but most of female spouses in the center are, okay i'm in a new land let's see what's happening here what's on my right side what's on my left side oh i get an opportunity to teach the class let's do it it's a pro bono but wow what an experience mm-hmm. teaching classes in english I had Japanese friends who were teaching Japanese calligraphy. Wow. We had friends who were teaching dancing classes there because this was their occupation previously back in China, for example. So I suddenly felt that I should appreciate that I do have some degree of freedom. And the only person who limits this degree of freedom is myself. Mm. When I'm telling myself, I need to find a job. If I don't have a job, it means that I'm not good enough. No. Yeah. With my peers at the center, mm-hmm. I was from the group who we came together. Let's say we all landed here in September 2018. I was almost the last one who got a job in Chicago University. After almost a year, I got my working permit already for a long time, and I was the last one. And the reason for that is that I got few offers for that, which were completely not something that I wanted to do. They were easy to go for, but they were completely not something that I wanted to do. And I came back to my spouse and I told him, look, I have this opportunity, let's say, to be a Hebrew teacher. Mm -hmm. And he told me, but you're not a Hebrew teacher. (laughs) Is this really what you want to do? And you know, this is something very liberating. 
And at some point, Faust just told me, promise me that you will not agree to the position that you don't feel that fits your capabilities, your abilities, and your aspirations. Yeah. And having this decided, like, okay, I promise. <laughs> and after a year, I had my first job as a team leader and the head teaching assistant for a business school in Chicago University. And I led my first team there and it was quite an adventure as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And good job to your husband, actually, to encouraging you in that direction and being a support system that you mentioned he brought you here. So being right. smart and encouraging you to actually find your right passion instead of just taking whatever first comes uh, mm-hmm. comes back. Right. But actually developing this support system, this is something that I do want us to talk a little bit now because developing this support system, and now I'm not talking about my spouse, I'm talking about peers and friends. And I mentioned that I had three male friends in the center. Now, how did they become my friends, right? It's also a question. And for me, investing in relationships was always the key. It was always the key for me to feel good about myself, but also to achieve everything and anything. Because connecting with others, it's something that allows me to get new knowledge, to understand better what's happening. But it also allows me to be the first one who is doing something for them. And then the relationship is set. And I think realizing that, that actually the relationships, they are about doing the first step. And if you are the person who is doing the first step, it would be easy for you. Just do it again and again and again and time and again. And I do want to share here a funny story. When I started looking for a job before I got into Chicago and I started looking for a job, I really like to do photography. I'm a photographer. I do portrait photography. And when I started looking for a job, I decided to write a post in an Israeli group. And it went like this. I am Nadia. Here's what I am capable of. I know how to teach, I know how to lead, I know how to build programs, I know how to collaborate. I'm looking to be involved in something at Stanford. If you do have any opportunity to discuss with me, let's meet. And I'm offering you a free photo session. Oh. Okay? And I wrote it first today. And I felt so, yeah, I nailed it. Now, like, this is great. That is wonderful. And after three days, two people reacted. And I said, Nadia, we don't, don't have an opportunity, but we would be happy to meet for a photo session. And I told myself, okay, let's meet for a photo session. And I met with these two people. And what I realized is that actually doing the photography first while meeting with them, that's my opportunity to tell them who I am, what am I looking for, and how they help me after I'm doing the photo session. Mm. And also they told me, Nadia, from your post, we don't understand what to do. What is it like <laughs> collaborating, communicating, building teams? Like, yeah. And for me, you know, it was like, why did I do it? Because I wanted to have a kind of broad, broad yeah. description of what I do. But when we do it so broadly, people don't really start, what are you looking for? What projects at Stanford? Yeah. Do you want to be uh, in a medical school taking blood samples? What projects? Yeah. And what happened? This post was complete failure. <laughs> and then after meeting with two people, I realized that here I was wrong. And my next post went like this. I'm giving you free photo sessions at Stanford. Please write your name below if you want to do it. That's it. Wow. 
And I got, I think, 20 comments on my first hour. Mm. And then 40 more comments. And then I opened Excel sheet and I started to write down <laughs> names and to schedule meetings with them. And it was like, I'm doing a photo session. Yeah. It was targeted for a specific audience, colors at Stanford. And meeting with those people, wow. Mm. Discovering so many areas of research, understanding, talking with people. Some of them are here for 11 years. Some of them are here for their first year. Some of them I'm planning to go back to Israel. Some of them I'm planning to stay here for life. And all those conversations, they were so meaningful. And meeting each other in this context that I'm doing something nice for them, right? Yes. And I had no ask. It was not, I expected to do something. It was not like this. But naturally, all of them asked me, okay, Nadia, who are you? Like, what are you looking for? Maybe I can help you somehow, right? Because... I was the first one, and this is something that I mentioned, to be the first one to initiate. It is so important, and I learned it from the failure of this post. Don't try to look for trade-off. Sometimes we think that people will fall for it. It's good. Mm. Give me that, I'll give you that. But that's not how life works. Yes. And thank you for that example, because that really brought it home for me. When you said the first part, I sort of followed by the example was perfect, and Actually, just to comment back when you said the first post, I was like, oh, that sounded pretty fun. I would be responding, right? But maybe I'm not the normal type of person. Uh, I, but if you do want to have a photo session, Clara, and you don't have a job to offer, right? You don't even understand what I'm looking for. Yes. It's three rows of a post. Now, yeah. you do need your profile picture, okay? You do kind yeah. of want to meet with me and say, okay, but I'm not going to comment because I have nothing to offer in return. Yes, you're sort of already presetting it that you would like something in return. And if the people don't know the clarity, don't have the clarity what you're looking for or don't have anything, they're probably shy. But on the second, and this is actually something I've been reading, uh, one of the Stanford class I took taught by Denise, I got a book, it's called How Remarkable Women Lead. It's actually a really fun book. I'm still reading it. Like typical, I read four books at the same time. So <laughs> I just jump from one to another. But it's a perfect example of what you described and what now connects to me was written in the book, how to build strategic relationships or even relationships in general. We all have something unique. Find what makes you unique and make the first step and offer it out exactly. and see what people respond. Or if you even have a specific person you want to offer it to, I think that is even better because you can target that specific skill or your uniqueness to that person. And actually the best thing is to offer it even before you may need anything in return, right? That is how you create your relationships because if you can do it ahead of time, then this strong sense of reciprocity that is built in our humanness yeah that is how communities survive nobody survives alone we shared food when we didn't have right. that reciprocity principle is so strongly embedded in us that if you offer something that the person values they will feel at some point of time they will remember that and be able and happy to help you with whatever else you may want support or help with later on yeah i love that example absolutely yeah and this strategic things that you mentioned i absolutely agree with that 
just want to add that it also should be genuine. Mm, yeah. We should be genuinely willing to give, willing to do, and sometimes nothing will happen in return. And that's fine. Right. If we are doing it and expecting that every person will do something, it will not happen. Mm-hmm. People will say, thank you so much. That's great. Yes. But here I also want to emphasize that this was my coffee meetings with people. And after two years, I had half a year when I just did it every week, like three or four or five people met and took pictures of them. I continued doing it a little bit even later on. And after two years, I met 85 Stanford scholars and researchers wow. that had 30-minute time with me. And if you love me, did it pay off? Absolutely. Without any doubt, I will do it again. I enjoyed it tremendously. Working on their pictures on my laptop alone at home was part that I liked much less. Mm. But this was the price for meeting them and to have those interactions. I learned an incredibly amount of information. And when I needed something, I had a question later on on something, I could reach out and ask, could you help me? I'm actually looking to buy, I don't know, I'm actually looking for a doctor. I don't know, I'm, I'm looking for, yeah, this is my community because I was there first. I decided to be there first. And it was a process of learning, right? You see that mm. I thought that I'm so clever and sophisticated with this post. You give me and I will give you back. And it, yeah. was, it was a failure. My position at Stanford as a teaching assistant for career counselor came from one of the people that I took an album for. We also developed a very good relationship, Dr. Yelena Iskovich, who introduced me to a career counselor and wrote a support letter for me. And I went through Roy's interviews and I got in. But without her, I would never even find this opportunity because she's coming from a medical school and she saw this opportunity of being a teaching assistant in career class for PhD students. And I was like, wow, our conversation was meaningful and she remembered what I was looking for. And once she saw it a few weeks later, she just shared it with me. So yeah, that's fantastic. I think great things happen when we also just genuinely enjoy doing something for others. Yes. And I cannot tell you how great I felt when the people send me, oh, my picture is awesome. It's now on LinkedIn. Like I love my new picture. It was a source of meaning for me. I am helping those people to have a better picture of themselves and to use it in their professional context. I really loved thinking about it that I especially help women professionals to have the best professional portraits of themselves. Yeah, that is great. And that's, I would say the portrait is something that is often painful. So the fact that you are able to seem like make it fun and enjoyable session for them where they can be relaxed and be themselves. I feel that through the photography, you can actually really get to know that person and even the editing process to bring up who they are as a person on the picture or who they want to represent that they can then put on the LinkedIn profile and hopefully people can see it through the portrait. Absolutely. Uh, We should do it, you and me. (laughs) <laughs> great i'm getting yeah. nervous from talking about all the interpersonal skills now i'm getting even concerned about our coffee because you're going to evaluate all of my body language <laughs> no don't worry uh, don't worry about just that kidding. but 
to share the similar thing for my podcast and why I enjoy my podcast, even editing it. I really get to know the person from talking to them, but I get to know them on a second level, even through the editing. Because the editing process for me is quite thorough. Once I start editing, there's even deeper level that I can sense in the language when I met people were happy or they were comfortable or they had some sort of emotions behind the question. So it's quite fun for me. It's a tedious process, but I really feel like I get to know that person even deeper than I ever could. So I'm assuming it's probably similar for you in the photography to some degree. Wow, but that's a great insight, Clara. And I also think that while talking with me now, you're more concentrated on listening and replying and thinking. And while editing, it's a different mental process, yes. right? You can stop it. Oh, why here it was yes. funny? Why here it was sad, right? Yes. Yeah, same with the photography because... What I started to do also, I started to ask people, what are the two pictures that you like the most? Mm. And it gave me perspective on two things. First, am I aligned with what they like? Do I and them like the same two pictures? The album is usually around 15 pictures. So do I target their expectations? And the second thing was, how do they see themselves? Yeah. What is it for them? which exact pose is the pose that they feel more comfortable in. And it also allowed me to learn a lot about that. I also just wanted to share, I also had a few people, this was really astonishing for me because I had a few people that from my perspective, I got a most amazing albums of them more than other albums and they hated every picture. Mm. Just a few people. I'm doing a bad uh, marketing for myself. (laughs) (laughs) But in this group of 85 people, I was able to identify those who just didn't like how they look, doesn't matter what. Mm. That's what I was wondering. Is it just because they don't even like to look at the mirror or they're not comfortable with being in their own skin? And so when they look at the picture, they will just not really like anything you create i think it goes deeper okay we can say the album was low quality bad job yeah it's possible no i I mean this is not what i get and and remember there is an element of having it for free Mm. that usually you say okay i have it for free it's great it's much better than the pictures i have before it's not that you paid for it and that's the product in this sense right i'm talking about the relationship here between me and and uh, stanford scholars But I think it goes much deeper to the level of of those few people, and it was only two or three people, who who maybe just didn't like who they are Mm. and maybe how they look like. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the photography. Yeah. Because from my perspective, some of those albums, they were much better than others. And sometimes I took pictures with people that I thought, uh, I should do better next time. And those people thought, wow, this was the most amazing picture that I have on my phone. I can do better. Like, but I didn't tell them, right? Yeah. I can do better yeah. next time. Like Nadia lightning, like think of the right. I could improve for the next time. But it was interesting to see that sometimes 
I felt that I could do better. Mm. And people were reflecting just like, wow, it's incredible. And of course, you like to hear this part about yourself. I think there's some portion of self-criticism at times. And I actually do have that feeling with podcasts. Sometimes I feel like I should have asked better questions. But then I re-listen. I was like, "It's, it's actually not bad. And it sometimes surprises me. The one I would think would be a top aren't. It's interesting how the difference is. I also wanted to ask, just going back to what you said, the people choosing the specific portrait which they liked versus you liked and how they see themselves or which one they would like to be, perhaps the posture that they feel like would be more natural. Yeah. I'm curious, what was the alignment? Because mm-hmm. you mentioned you were always curious. Like, did it typically align or... Did you typically pick the ones that with your professional photography eyes, right? Because I think you're looking at it maybe different. You have this photography and you can at the lighting and you're looking at mm-hmm. which ones you think you've done a better job at. And I wonder the people may be evaluating it differently and or they may not even know always what they want to reflect or which one they actually want to be. Right. Um So here we are going a bit deeper into photography. If I split them into three groups, all the people that I took pictures, the temporal, the first group in my timeline, the first portraits, I asked them, it was usually aligned with what I thought the best pictures are. Sometimes some things were less aligned. And then I tried to figure out if it's about a facial expression, because my perception of other person is different than her or his perception of himself or herself Mm -hmm. right and sometimes you will see me smile in a different way we don't have video here I have audio but when I will see myself smile I will tell myself oh I don't like myself smiling this but actually it is a great picture photographer thinks it's a good picture so sometimes it's a teeny tiny face expressions but the picture as a whole it also has a background. It also has a specific posture. So sometimes it was not aligned. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that I split it into three groups with my middle group of portraits. What I found out very useful is to pick up two pictures that I think are the best mm-hmm. and to send them to them first mm-hmm. before the album. Now, what happens is they have two incredible, sometimes black and white, sometimes colorful pictures at Stanford when they're dressed up with all the gold and trees and all the environment. And usually what happens, it helps them to fall in love with those pictures. And after they see the album, they still think those two pictures are great. Mm. And it happens because when we have too much choice, it's very, very hard for us to focus or pick up something. And also it happens because sometimes we think that, okay, she's the photographer, she knows. Mm. And I also started to limit the number of pictures because I realized that as less pictures as I send is the better. Yeah. Usually in the set, we have between 50 to 70 pictures and the album is around 15. Mm. If it would be even seven And it's seven, not in the same posture. It's in different environments. Sometimes I also do full body just for them to have it maybe for a different opportunity. And when it's less pictures, it works better. They like it more. Mm. This was interesting. And then again, I had a few people, I think it was two, that asked me to see all the pictures. 
it's fine that you're doing the album, but can we see all the 70? Now, this is something that kind of I will ask you, oh, Clara, can I hear all the podcasts with all the parts? Like, I don't trust that you will edit it. It's not only about that, right? I want to hear the whole piece. Mm. Now, it again, I think it comes from the place of a bit insecurity, maybe. And I was fine with that. I said, hey, of course, sure. I will share with you all the 70. Mm. But I found out very soon that it's not healthy for the people. They get lost. Yeah. And I can tell you about myself. And I have 50 pictures of myself with differently, just a bit tiny, teeny eye uh, opening and my mouth. I got lost. I prefer that somebody will tell me, Nadia, here's five best pictures if you look at them. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, it's hard. Personally, my mom actually gave me some photography sessions. My sister used to do some modeling. So we have these ladies, they typically do professional model pictures and they do the whole shebang. You actually come there, you just have to show up and they do your hair. It's actually sort of fun makeup. They pick your clothes and right. they like tell me how to do it. They're not completely professional for like profile. They're more just sort of fun pictures. Sometimes people use them to put them on a wall. I don't have pictures of myself on a wall, but some people do that. But I have the same feeling when they give you the full set or access to the full set, but they only give you five to choose. And I get so lost to where now I rarely ever go back. I try to pick the five, which is a tremendous amount of work (laughs) that I have to choose, like the five perfect ones that takes me sometimes days or weeks to ponder about, which then they fully edit to the final format to do the editing. And then after that, I just go to those four or five I have and I never go back to look at like the whole, I, I almost forget, maybe I even lose the rest of them, which they're still great, but I never go back to check it out. Yeah. And what have you learned from this process? What do you learn about yourself when you are in this process? Um, what have I learned from the process? I've learned number one, anybody can look amazing on a picture if you have amazing photographer. So when you look at the the models and all of these things and when they edit it out, sometimes I don't feel like I look like myself, but they do such a great job in the editing that, you know, it goes back to the dilemma that we women have against ourselves. And I wrote a paper about it, even in school, like the standards of how women hold themselves accountable to what the magazines look like, like these skinny women that are zero size and that everybody wants to be which is unrealistic even so the camera if you have a great photographer anybody can look amazing number two taking pictures is a lot of work so when they put you in the posture and they have these like really model type looking and i look so unnatural or i'm so cramped up in like this really weird position that is totally doesn't look like i would have this posture anywhere in normal life but on the picture, it looks amazing. So now when you look at even any magazine or you go shopping on the Nordstrom's or whatever websites and the women are in these postures, like that's not really natural, but it just looks natural on the picture. Right. They do a really great job. So I, I don't have anything to really add. It's sort of fun. But two hours of this photo session, I'm tired. I'm wiped out. So I have different admiration for modeling and models and actually people who do this professionally because it 
takes a lot of work if you're actually doing it for the magazines to have the right facial expression and know how to stand and to bring up the right attitude together with, I guess, especially if they're doing clothing and how things look, it's it's a completely different type of art. So we're almost out of time, but this has been super fun. Is there anything you would want to dive in before we finish? We can talk for five more hours, right? <laughs> and, you know, That's that. true. <laughs> yeah. I do have a few things that I would like to say as my final word. First of all, thank you so much for this opportunity to reflect on where I'm standing today and how do I understand the journey that I had. Grand Slam is about life journey. Yes. It was my American journey here for two and a half years. It's not completed yet. I am still in the middle of it, but I'm in a different part now. And this reflection and also understanding how is communicating and actually photography, which is a part of visual communication, right? So I was talking a lot about loving to talk with people and loving to discuss and meet and being there with people but also photography was my way to identify the need of others but also to fulfill my own need for communication for meeting with real people and talking to them and asking them questions and having a wonderful conversations so this was really great I do want to add that I think that after these two and a half years that I had a few milestones that I was really brave. And I asked myself, what allowed me to be brave and to try new things and not to be afraid to fail, not to be afraid to be laughed at? And the answer is also the community and the people that support me here. I mean, it would always be the people, the friends, the international center, people at my work, people in Chicago, who will be there for me and will support me because I will be there for them and I will support them. And I think a lot of times it's not clear for us how, how can I make others be there for me? And the answer is be there for them. Just think how you can be there for them. And then it just comes. It doesn't come from every person, but but it just comes. And I remember my brother once asked me, and I was doing photography and also meeting with people, he asked me, with the conversations as well, sometimes he told me, don't you think that those people are taking advantage of you, like you're doing something for them and that's it? And it took me a moment to just understand the question. I was like, how are you? They are taking advantage it was really, I would use it as a refreshing perspective on that. And I said, if somebody is taking advantage here, it's me who is having the audience and the need to have people around her and to feel supported. And all those 85 people supported me in different ways. Mm. Some of them much more like Dr. Itzkovich and some of them still are in my contacts and are my connections. So this sense of being connected and being part of and also helping them with something was main part of my journey here yeah thank you for sharing that I think that's a great closing and uh, thank you for your inspiration Nadia as always it's been 
so much fun speaking with you about so many topics and we can go on for many hours. Maybe we can have a round two at some point about career choices, storytelling and business, how to improve interpersonal communication. I think in general is something that I believe we all can improve and get better at. And how do we do it even now with the pandemic over the video, which hopefully will go away at some point in 2021, I hope. But I think uh, we're still in it for the inevitable at least number of months. To end, looking into 2021, anything we should be doing more of, less of? We are all starving now for communication. We want attention. We want somebody to care about us. We want somebody to be there for us now, even more than before. So if I can give my tiny, teeny piece of advice, communication is all about how do you make others feel and not what you say. Mm. And I think taking this tip, let's call it, and understanding that it's all about how you make others feel, the rule of thumb is please don't make close people and also not close people feel wrong, feel bad about themselves, because that's what they will remember. Any interaction, any communication, you and me, we both will remember which level of energy was there and how was it for you to feel around me? That's it. Mm. And maybe we should ask ourselves, how do our people that are close to us feel around us? And maybe we can improve it a little bit. And I think this is something that I learned through my journey so far, also in the US, but even before. And I'm trying to apply this rule every day and to use it. And sometimes I meet people that I completely disagree with. And I also completely disagree with the way they are doing stuff, Mm. the way they say stuff. But again, I don't want them to feel wrong or to feel bad or to feel unappreciated around me because it will not lead us anywhere. Yeah, I love that note. And I think if we all can... As you mentioned, look around, just around us to what's the first and second tier of people we really care about and can influence and move with just one or two percent to pay attention to it. It's going to have a huge compounding interest in the quality of our relationships and the enjoyment we get from the time we spend with them. And even in return, I think it's something invaluable. Absolutely. Let's try, Clara, you and me from tomorrow. We can implement it also for a new people that we meet. Yeah. Let's try you and me to be 1% better starting from tomorrow and proceed with that with every day. I love that mindset. Thanks for the challenge, Nadia. I'll take it. Great. Have a lovely evening. Super. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye.